Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. We Have Ways of Making You Talk presents One Man's Window, an illustrated account of 10 weeks of war, Malta, April 13th to June 21st, 1942, by Dennis Barnum. Chapter 14, Total War. I have three things to hang on to in this nightmare island. My wife, although I have no letter, my art, although I'm too tired to paint, and my job as a fighter pilot, even if I am considered a failure. Today, Saturday, May the 16th, is my official day to lead the squadron, but here I am at four o'clock in the afternoon, clad in pyjamas, lying on the sofa in the bar with the CO's raincoat wrapped about me. I am feeling wretchedly ill with the Malta dog again. I thought the earlier bout that hit me a week ago had been thrown off successfully, but this morning, when I tried to get up, I was shivering again. The CO forbade me to fly. All morning, I lay sunbathing on the flat roof outside, discovering that the hot sun on my body got rid of the dreadful fits of icy fever. I watched the sunlight glisten on the beads of salt sweat that rose on my bronze skin. I also glimpsed at the sky for JU-88s. Messerschmitts and Spitfires were racing to and fro across the blue, in and out of the clouds that started to build up. The whole sky is now obscured by heavy clouds, so that the wind blowing in through the open French windows is refreshingly cool. The pain in my stomach is at the moment nothing worse than a dull ache, although from time to time it clenches my intestines. I'm feeling dizzy with a splitting pain inside my head. It seems to splash like acid inside my skull. A refreshing wind, it blows my hair over my hot forehead as I gaze at the whitewashed walls that surround me. I'm glad the sun has gone in for the dazzling light on them made my eyes ache. High on the wall, above the bar opposite, is the squadron crest, the flaming sword that I painted there. It's a diabolically awful colour, a dark crimson like dried blood. To the left of the bar is the accursed scoreboard, still a blank despite the CO's instructions to fill it with swastikas that nobody agrees about. On the bar itself are a few bottles while Manuel Gallia, our Maltese barman, is waiting behind the counter ghostly replica of Manet's bar of Folie Berger, but without the glitter or gaiety. The erotic touch in this place, engrimed as it is with dust and dirt, is given by a calendar advertising a firm that used to belong to a B-flight pilot, another pilot who was killed the other day when his parachute failed to open. It depicts a provocatively naked blonde, standing up with her purple back towards us and the rest of her body tantalisingly, but not quite, revealed in a half-length mirror that is cunningly placed in front of her. Pilots pay more attention to the huge rudder of polished wood that fell clear of the Italian bomber that the CO destroyed, filling the corner behind my left shoulder, and to the dull black machine guns buckled and twisted from one of my abortive 88s. These guns are pinned high on the wall above me. They look like black embracing snakes. Manuel Galea still stands waiting, but no one is bothering to drink anything. There are hundreds of flies crawling silently over the bar counter, blackening the discarded glasses. There are more flies buzzing round my hot face. I wish the damn things would leave me alone. Squadron leader Barton, commonly called Sailor, the CO of the other Luca squadron, is also off duty today, also suffering from the dog. He's shuffling across the dusty floor, clad in black leather flying boots and an old silk dressing gown. But there are many other pilots lying ill on their beds in the next room, most with the dog. Mike Graves of the other squadron is in there too. He shot down an 88 yesterday, but his Spitfire, flying into the disintegrating wreckage, blew up. Although Mike escaped by parachute, he is somewhat shaken. This bar is now empty, but for one other companion lying back on the opposite end of this sofa, exhausted and silent. Pancho isn't ill, but he looks awful. 
His usually happy face is drawn and worried, and there are drooping bags under his eyes. Pancho, leading the formation this morning instead of me, had to act quickly in a tactical situation that was as ugly as the one I faced on my last trip. He did the only thing possible by turning straight into a large formation of Italian Reggiani fighters. He is blaming himself for what happened to Sergeant Harris. Harris's Spitfire was hit in the glycol tank. He tried to bring it back. He was too low to reach the runway. His machine hit a stone wall, cartwheeling across the aerodrome, tearing off its wings. He is in hospital, with the base of his skull split. Doubt if he'll live. There's activity by the French windows. The CO and Scotty are coming in, unwinding a drum of electric cable behind them. Scotty looks ill, a changed man since Max was killed. All the sparkle of fun behind his eyes is gone. His lifted eyebrows give his wizened little face a bewildered expression. What was that for, I ask him. Scotty tries to smile. It's a floozy phone, he replies. You'll soon be able to ring up all your floozies and things. Presumably a civilian telephone line is being brought into the mess. A floozy is a girlfriend of a particular type. I wonder how many of us really go into action with these girls. Some do. One of our newly arrived pilots had his first experience of a woman in Valletta last night. He told me this morning he was terribly ashamed. Late in the evening, with this persistent pain in my head and wretched uneasiness in my stomach, I'm lying on my bed in the darkness. I'm dropping into semi-consciousness. I know I'm dreaming. A long, dark tunnel of earth, pitch black, but someone else is in here with me. All the muffled noises, the groans and exertion tell me that some companion is climbing with me up this dark tunnel. In continuous darkness, crawling on our hands and knees, we grope our way forward with the heavy roof pressing low upon us. How long have we been climbing, heaving ourselves along with endless labour? We've got to keep on upwards, although there's no sign that the tunnel will ever end. In the packed earth wall, just a few feet in front of me, a great wooden door is suddenly thrown open. Glaring light floods out over the floor, radiating from some source that I cannot see. White light, pure and dazzling. Although I crane my head sideways and peer into the opening, it is still impossible to see whence it comes. But my companion can. He is a few steps ahead of me, opposite this unknown place, head turned as he looks inside. The light has caught him, frozen him in an attitude of stepping forward into the blackness. His groping hands recoil in terror from what he sees. As his shoulders lift high from his ribs, glittering beads of sweat break out all over his back. His eyeballs stare fixedly, his nostrils twist, his mouth drops open. The nape of his neck twitches, his hair moves. Watching him in horrified fascination, I feel the same terror overwhelming me. I cannot breathe. My heart is pounding wildly. Sweat's oozing out onto my forehead. Paralysed with terror, I'm fighting desperately to get back to the walls of my bedroom, fighting, fighting my way back. My bedroom, my bedroom. My clutching hands gradually relax their rigid hold on twisted sheets. My heart is still thumping while my breath is coming in great gasps. I lift my head from the sweat-soaked mattress. It is nearly dawn, and on the opposite side of the room, the heavy body of the CO is tossing in his bed. The CO tells me that he's not well this morning. I don't know if I'm better or worse, but it's irrelevant, for someone has got to take the pilots down for dawn readiness. I am quickly dressed. By the fluttering candle flame, I wait for the others. Why did I feel such terror in the night? I don't think I'm frightened of the unknown that lies beyond death. Such fear, then, is unaccountable. After good, clear dreams of combat the other night, the flying that followed was highly successful. What's going to happen after this nightmare? Am I going to get killed, or is someone else? We're close to our Spitfires in readiness. The group captain station commander has just been over to see us in a polished American car, reminiscent of peacetime, I thought to myself, as I held the door open for him. Barnum, he said, I hear you're suffering from the dog. Woody says you're not to fly. By the way, tell whoever you put in charge to use the callsign Ratter instead of Exile for flying today. His visit is an unnecessary complication. I don't want to fly. I'm feeling wretched with the splitting head pain, and now I've been ordered not to. But with the CO ill, the dreaded hue in hospital, somebody's got to lead the formation. Somebody's got to pilot the eight Spitfires available. I don't know how long we can go on like this, because I'm not the only man who has spewed up his breakfast in the last half hour. I'm not, however, going to send another Max to his death. 
We're in the air now. We've been orbiting at 27,000 feet for almost half an hour, but the raid that Woody expected to develop on Grand Harbour hasn't materialised. Oxygen's diminishing fast, our petrol short. In order to conserve fuel, I'm leading the formation at very slow speed. We are wide open to 109 attack. Impossible to search for enemy planes in the violet blue with the dazzling sun piercing my perspex hood with opaque prongs of white light. I've shoved the hood fully back. Icy air blusters about my open cockpit. Brutally cold. Far below us, Malta is a brown blob in a vast sea. Seventy miles away in Sicily, I can see the volcano of Etna, its snow-covered crater clearly below our level. If we stay up here much longer, with our dark, strong, shapely spitfires floating together in the pale void, and dressed as we are in shorts and shirts in a temperature of 30 degrees below zero, we'll all die of cold. Shivering in convulsive jerks from the shoulders, I search the sky. My companions turn their trusting pink faces towards me, alert for any manoeuvre I may make. The Itai raid is coming in from the northwest, over Gozo at Angel's 30. Gain as much height as you can, sailor. An Itai raid approaching, but Woody calling me sailor must think I'm squadron leader Barton. Of course, he doesn't know I'm flying. It's with a sense of truancy that I smile down at the tiny island. Going up, Ratter Squadron. Keep your eyes open. From 30,000 feet, I steer the squadron in a shallow dive to one side of the approaching enemy. I can see five big bombers packed tight, their wings, angled tailplanes and fragile vertical rudders overlapping neatly. I can see their fighter escort, 40 Italian fighters, but in such a stupid formation, a long diagonal line on the far side. I'm going to try out a new manoeuvre, based on what I learned against the 88s the other day. I'm leading four Spitfires in line abreast with another lot of four Spitfires, blue section just behind me. OK, blue section, turn into the bombers now, I order, twisting round in my seat and watching them go. The enemy fighters, as they turn to attack blue section, will, I hope, like all good fighter pilots, look over their shoulders first. My four Spitfires, called red section, will be right behind them. In order to defend themselves, those 40 fighters should turn quickly into us. Blue section, without opposition, should be able to destroy the whole bomber formation. Blue section are closing with the bombers, the enemy fighters, having seen them, are moving to intercept. I'm coming round behind. But have the enemy seen my four machines? Am I too far behind? Have I misjudged it? No, it's working perfectly. The enemy fighters have seen us. The whole lot are turning back towards us, clumsily, one after another. Blue section is having a free run in. One enemy fighter jerks across my nose in a steep turn, about to follow him round. I glimpse right. Alongside me is another Italian machine with its huge white cross markings on its fuselage and tail. Beyond it, many more Mackies are deploying to attack us. Pulling back on my control column, I roll inverted high over the top of them. We've drawn off the whole hornet's nest. Ten to one against us. No real need to stay. I glimpse a Spitfire with its guns firing on a Mackie's tail. Come on out of it, red section, I call. Rolling out and diving behind them, I watch the bombers flying onwards, steadily flying onwards, quite unperturbed. Blue section must have muffed their attack. In anger at our failure, I stare at the bombers. Four of them. Four of them. One is missing, but only one. Far below, there are dots of smoke on the tiny island. Their bombs are going off. All Ratter aircraft, reform with Ratter leader. Angels 30 over St Paul's Bay. I wait and wait. I want to have another bash at these Italians. The plan worked beautifully. I gave blue section the plum roll, yet without opposition, they muffed it. Should have done the job myself. Where is everybody? I wait and I wait. My men are probably short of fuel. Too late now. The enemy have crossed the coast. Anger consumes me as, kicking on bottom rudder and throwing over the control column, I plunge vertically earthwards. Down, 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 down. I'm making this blasted Spitfire dive vertically as fast as it will go. My anger is matched by the mounting speed, the solid buffeting air around my open cockpit and the fierce pressure needed to control this machine. The rising detail of individual hills and houses is blotted out by sudden frost on my windscreen. Down, down, down. Controls rigid, but the aircraft is bucking, wriggling and making strange noises. Something's wrong. As I start turning the trimming wheel to ease me out of this dive, a wave of heat engulfs my feet and legs. She's on fire.
The aerodrome runway flashes past and heaving with all my strength on the controls, I race low round the buildings of Valletta and out over the Blue Harbour. The sudden heat is nothing more than the contrast between the icy temperatures up top and heat radiating from the sun-scorched landscape below. Look at aerodrome swings past a second time. Slowing with dispersal pens and parked spitfires streaming past my bounding wingtip, I feel the sudden onset of pain in my stomach. It doubles me forward in my seat. Slow enough to lower my wheels and flaps, I slide in for my landing on the long runway. I taxi up to a group of my airmen, switch off the engine and start climbing out. As the airmen push my aircraft back between the protective walls of the sandbag pen, I stagger to the ground and am sick. Back to Naxa, to the pilots talking in the bar. That 88 you shot down on Takali the other day, a B-flight pilot tells me, bloody good show. We watched it all then, went over to have a look. The German pilot was draped over the top of the wreckage, all burning, as the flames consumed him, so the muscles contracted his right arm, bringing it up in a Heil Hitler salute. Interesting to watch. Yes, says another pilot with a bitter laugh. Four more unhappy families in Germany. Let them all sizzle. Have any luck today? Yes, I reply. We destroyed an Italian bomber and a fighter. To have destroyed only two machines with eight Spitfires isn't good enough. If only we could have reformed again and had another go. I must think out some plan. It was not Blue Section's fault that they only destroyed one bomber. The pilots' hands were frozen solid. They couldn't move their fingers to fire their guns. Babyface has gone to sick quarters with frostbite. My companions are a grand lot of men, but all of us are ill, gaunt, with dark eyes, fiercely strained and living on the edge of frayed nerves. We are numb with war. I am hardly more than sorrowful that a German pilot dies in the wreckage of his plane that I set fire to, although it is ugly, ugly to think that I am responsible for the distress of his family. But I must protest about war. I protest about hate. Why must senior officers, who I know to be good men, come here to tell us to hate? We may be fearful in our cockpits, but this is just a job to be done, and most of us must surely be serene and quiet in our attitude towards the enemy. Cyril, for instance, how could he be anything else? Why, then, must we hate? Why must we be set on a downward path towards barbarity? How much do we have to accept? But people are beginning to hate. Four more unhappy families in Germany, we say. Good show. Watch the Germans sizzle. A pilot in my flight gave me a story he's written about himself. Staccato machine guns and his face in the mirror, his lips drawn back over his teeth in a snarl. Hate, 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 and proud of it. Where can it all end? There is terrible news. News of the Italians, the three ice cream men, who, less than a week ago, I watched descending in their parachutes and landing in the sea. The ones I watched standing alive and well on the ledge onto which they had climbed. The men I watched waving to me and trusting me. Some persons unknown arrived on the cliff top before the rescue party. Or did the rescue men themselves commit the crime? I do not know. But all that was found of the Italians was crushed bodies, pulp and blood. Someone had deliberately rolled rocks over the cliff top. I am in hell. Those Italians were personal to me. I loved them as they swung down the sky, waving and kicking their legs like young children. I looked forward to meeting them someday. They are dead. Atrocities are true then, and Lord forgive us, there is laughter in the mess. Laughter. Now we won't have to feed them. They shoot us in our parachutes and dinghies, we'll do the same to them. And to my protests, laughter, and one single remark. Dennis, you need re-educating. This is total war. What is happening to us? I can bear the laughter no longer. Beyond the open door is the quiet evening. In silence on the roof in the twilight, I watch the pure light of the stars reappearing one by one in patterned brilliance. Alone now in my bedroom. My wife's photograph here, no letter, but at least I can work. I'm drawing my own face in the mirror, a stranger staring back at me. I'll bear the solitude of this battle by drawing, continuously drawing. I too may write about this one day. I add such a book in the corner of my drawing. But will I survive to write the book? Will I even be alive this time tomorrow? I title the picture, 
The future. What? And add today's date, the 16th of May, 1942. That's it for today. We'll be heading back to the heat of Malta soon. If you're enjoying this audiobook, you might be interested to know that we have nine free audiobooks on our members' site. It's £6 a month to join, or $7.50 in the US, but for that you get a weekly live show, lots of discussions with like-minded people, and all those free audiobooks. You can join by going to patreon.com slash wehaveways. That's patreon, spelt P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com slash wehaveways. More of One Man's Window, coming soon.